Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are talking about the resurrection, or to be specific, the resurrection of the crucified one. We began our season two of this podcast by talking about the crucifixion, and let's all admit it was a fairly grim and gruesome episode because crucifixion is the worst thing you can do to a person, pretty much. But the only reason why Jesus is remembered as a crucified one is because he is also the one who was raised or risen from the dead. So that is where we're going today. Dad, as we were preparing for this, I was thinking um, about my um, immense fondness for Jesus Christ Superstar, the musical, despite its vast raft of theological and spiritual <laughs> misjudgments. But it is still a a, a good piece of work. Um, but the first time I heard it, I was on a, a road trip in college um, and a friend played it for me. And I was utterly outraged that it simply ended with <laughs> Jesus' burial, um, or maybe early in the morning, that there was no resurrection. I thought it was, you know, just overtly trying to promote the idea that Jesus just died and that was the end of it. Now I think that probably you can't film the resurrection successfully, and I think that will actually be an uh, important point for us to get to. But I will say at least this, Jesus Christ Superstar was wiser to end before the resurrection than its uh, companion attempt at retelling the gospel in a contemporary idiom, namely Godspell, which, if I recall correctly in the film version, concludes with the disciples carrying Jesus' corpse, skipping and dancing through the city and singing with joy and praise, as if there's anything to be happy about somebody being dead and staying dead, especially on account of crucifixion. So I think the key point for us to take away here is that the only reason it matters that Jesus was crucified is that he was raised. But then, of course, that begs the question of what exactly are we talking about when we talk about resurrection, especially if it's hard to do in a musical or in a movie or in any other uh, artistic format? What do you think? Well, very good. You know, that makes me think back to the 60s when I was a teenager and Jesus Christ Superstar uh, first came out on Broadway. And I lived in the suburbs of New York City. And I think I saw the production on Broadway several times. Hmm, I and I was very enthusiastic for it. And um, because, you know, at that time, growing up in New suburban New Jersey, the secularism was so thick that here was popular music talking about Jesus Christ. And like, wow, that's really great. No matter what, how, how theologically confused these lyrics are, this is just <laughs> great. And even my father, a conservative Missouri Synod uh, Lutheran pastor, uh, patiently listened to the whole thing with me and pronounced his imprimatur, that this was a good thing. <laughs> Nice. This was a good thing. At least they're talking about Jesus. <laughs> well, I'm glad to know Grandpa would also approve. <laughs> yeah, right. But I think you're right. How how on earth can you um, talk about the resurrection as if it were simply an historical fact, just like the fact that Jesus was a Jew, that he was from the city of Nazareth or the town of Nazareth, that he told parables of the kingdom of God and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. All these are historically ascertainable facts. But the resurrection is a test that divides the house uh, and its eventuality or eventfulness 
or factuality is precisely what's at stake in this division of the house. It's certainly true that all the literature of the New Testament we have, that uh, from the earliest extant writing, which is Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians, on through the rest of the corpus of the New Testament, every single bit of it is written and thought through the prism, as you said, of the primitive gospel, of the resurrection of the crucified one. And that that isn't so just straightforward or obvious as it might seem at first. Um, one of the things I, I relearned in preparing for this episode, uh, looking at some essays by N.T. Wright, who has been one of the major exponents or maybe interpreters of what resurrection can even mean, um, what he said is that what we see in early, in, in the Judaism of the period, is a actually huge range of perspectives on resurrection. There's no kind of coherent central narrative of what it is. Um, there are some clear things that um, it's in dialogue with, for example, it's against the um, Greek or pagan understanding, which is purely immortality of the soul, no resurrection of the body. Like for the, the pagan world, the body is just done at death. And for the Jews, there was some possibility of ongoing bodily life beyond Sheol, which is, you know, they're the Old Testament term for what we might call hell. It's more like the holding tank of the dead. Um, but then there was this whole range. It didn't mean everybody necessarily. Um, it probably was most associated with the vindication of the martyrs, like the Maccabees, um, again, under pagan attacks. Um, it definitely never meant one single person who was uh, temporarily detached from everybody else's resurrection. Like if there was going to be a resurrection, it was going to be a collective resurrection of the righteous of Israel all at once. And that would in that moment inaugurate an eschatological age so that time could not, and history could not possibly look the same as they did before. And it's kind of like in this broad nexus of ideas that the the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection comes through. And what's interesting about it then is that, as you say, in the New Testament, there is this unanimity and concision about what they mean when they say this, which is quite unlike the environment in which it is found. Yeah, that's so that kind of uh, in this broad background that N.T. Wright has sketched out from his study of intertestamental Judaism, the early Christian conviction expressed in the statement, Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus was raised from the dead, is kind of unique over against all the multiple possibilities of conceiving of such a thing, right? Yeah, yeah. What struck me too is that um, this is, I think, right, addressing more contemporary people, but he talks about what resurrection or saying Jesus has been raised could not possibly mean. So for instance, sorry, Rudolf Bultmann, I know we beat you up a lot on this program, but you kind of brought it on yourself. But there's no way that the followers of Jesus or Jews of his time would say Jesus has been raised to describe an internal change in their own spiritual state or awareness. There's no rising into the kerygma or any nonsense like that. That is just that there are other there's other language that would have made sense for talking about that kind of feeling like other Jews would have had a feeling of peace about the fate of the martyrs for example in God's care but they would not have said Jesus has been raised from the dead 
Or they wouldn't use it to describe the apparition of a dead person, which was rare but known. Um, an example of this is the really comical little story in Acts when uh, Peter is let out of prison by an angel and he comes to the house where his friends are. And Rhoda, the servant maid, is so excited to see him that she actually forgets to unlock the door and let him in and rushes back to the crowd and says, it's Peter, it's Peter, he's here, he's here. And they're like, no, you just saw his angel. He's dead. He's obviously dead. And she's like, no, 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 really, really. Um, and But the fact that they just say this so easily, his angel means that they understand they could be having a vision of the dead Peter, but they did not mean, you know, Peter raised from the dead. If they had, they would have, you know, insisted she go and open the door right away. So again, this, we the, the language of resurrection is very precise and very much about bodily integrity, not just um, internal peace or visions of, of one who is dead. Right. And that, you know, that's... You know, so many people have taken offense at the physicality of the body as if, and you know, then you can raise all sorts of rationalistic objections to the idea of resurrection. After all, our bodies decompose and they're recycled into the Earth's environment. And then the atoms, the molecules that are reprocessed and appear perhaps also in later generations of human beings. So in the resurrection, how are you possibly going to put all these parts back together? You know, you get that kind of uh, uh, common sense objection to the physicality of the resurrection. Augustine in the City of God takes these questions up at great length, like talking about fingernails and hair, like, well, all the fingernails you've yeah. ever produced been be raised with you. Weird stuff like that. Or, or one that occurred to me is what if Jesus had been beheaded instead of crucified? Would the resurrection involve refusing his head to his neck? Right, exactly. Or you can also raise other objections like um, uh, if you die as an infant or as a child, will you be resurrected in that state with a future life of, of, to grow ahead of you, or will you be in your maturity? If you're old and decrepit, will you be <laughs> resurrected in that state, right, you right. know, and continue in, each, in eternity in a decrepit state? You know, all sorts of objections to the... But here, there's a certain ignorance of the Greek language which rather carefully distinguishes between two words, sarx, which we should translate as meat, more commonly flesh. This is referring to the body qua physicality. And then there's soma, another Greek word, which refers to the body qua its form, as a form of life, so to speak a bodily form of life. That's soma. And what's so significant about soma uh, is that it designates our inherent reference as individuals with our own body to other bodies. There's a social uh, reference to being soma uh, in our bodiness, in our sexuality, in our interchange with the environment through respiration and eating and drinking and eliminating and so forth and so on. Uh, this having a soma means I am available to others uh, as something specifically living there in this piece of space and time. And so Talking about the resurrection, especially in 1 Corinthians 15, 
Paul rather sharply distinguishes between sarks and soma. Uh, he says food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach is meant for food, referring to physicality, and both will be left behind in the resurrection. It is sown a physical body, he says, and it is raised a spiritual body. So there's this distinction again between sarks and soma, between meat, flesh, physicality, and the social nature of humanity as individuals referred to others, to an environment, to other human beings in a, a community of love and ultimately to God. Yeah, if I can just briefly refer us back to Leviticus, uh, one of the, the insights there is that um, personhood or, or individuality is a delimitation, and the delimitation comes from a wall, not an evil wall that excludes, but an, a wall of integrity, like a cell wall, is the difference between life and death, essentially. And so that delimitation of my my space or my reality from that of others is actually the life-giving limit that lets me have community. By contrast, one of the uh, weirder things to come out of Silicon Valley is this, you know, great messianic expectation of the grand upload or whatever they call it when everybody's consciousness right, right. is, they leave the body behind, the physicality behind. But what they imagine, I, I guess, is uh, the mind or consciousness uploaded. But what's always struck me as so horrifying about that is that there's no longer any delimitation. There's no, no boundary between this consciousness and that. It doesn't sound to me like, like a joyous intercommunion it sounds to me like just the the static and rattle of your you know senseless dreams in the middle of the night <laughs> yeah and of course you can ask the question how could there be consciousness or self-consciousness apart from bodiliness in the sense of 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 uh, soma uh, i learned that i am me and not mama that's one of the first things the infant does as it separates from the mother's womb and from the mother's nursing breasts and so forth and so on. I am not an extension of her. I am my own person. And that's the beginning of its consciousness, that distinction and relationship with another body, a body that it's intimately related to, particularly in the mother. So the whole Jewish heritage when it conceives of the possibility of eternal life, uh, as varied and vague as the ideas were, a la N.T. Wright, right? As varied and vague as these ideas were, uh, what they had in common was that it was inconceivable to the intertestamental mind of the children of Israel that eternal life could be in a disembodied state. And that, that is the sharpest point of disagreement with the pagan world around it. Right, and it's worth it for a moment, just that you talk, mentioned that earlier, Sarah. Let's talk about that for a minute. Because the whole pagan uh, conception of eternal life, so far as it has one, um, is based upon its repugnance at physicality. That, uh, that whatever it is that animates the physical, the true life of the physical, is in principle separable from the physical. So this can be either uh, CK in Greek, anima in Latin, the soul, conceived of as, as the power of life, or it can be spirit in, in another very vague sense, but it, 
The metaphor there is respiration, inhaling and exhaling. What's the difference between a corpse and a living being? A living being breathes it, right? And that then that's the spirit of it, the spirit of its of the body which gives it life. And then there's the Platonic tradition, which finally conceives of the soul as mind, as the intellectual power of life, and that's what really survives as eternal. And there you can, in all of these ways, you can ask, to what extent does the real human being from birth day to death day, that's identity is forged in its historical experience, to what extent does that human being survive in any of these ideas? Answer, very little. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. I've said this before, but after three, 4,000 years of Judaism and 2,000 plus years of or, or so of Christianity, I think the pagans are still winning. <laughs> I think still very fundamentally in Western culture, we still opt for the immortality mm-hmm. of the soul and we still are fundamentally disgusted at the body and always looking at ways to leave it behind, whether through practical engineering or just through a, a kind of denial at the way we are, are shaped and experience reality only through our specific delimited historical bodily experiences. And this is, But this is a very deep theme, isn't it? Because having a body, being body, being available to others, that is our deeply rooted and, I would say, ineradicable vulnerability. And that's what we want to escape from. And with good reason a lot of the time. <laughs> I mean, people, people, we are, we're not only vulnerable, we're vulnerable sinners in the midst of other sinners. I totally get the desire to escape my potential being the object of someone else's violence or maliciousness or ignorance, whatever, you know. Yeah, I, we get that. <laughs> it's, it's not a totally irrational response. But the, the uh, Christian resurrection alternative to that is to say whoever fears God has nothing else in all creation to fear. And whoever becomes vulnerable to God becomes invulnerable to anything else in all creation. That's the resurrection faith that steals the nerves of the martyrs so that they can face torture and death in that, like we talked about, perpetuum felicitas. Yeah, I think maybe we can say this is the point at which we see where a faith based on the resurrection of the body and a faith that consistently insists on repentance and forgiveness and absolution meet each other. Because if you are going to continue on in this embodied life where you can continually be the victim of somebody else's violence, then there has to be a continual possibility of reset and restoration for your bodily life together. Absolutely, yes. Right, which is why we live by faith, and faith lives by the Word of God, which we need to hear constantly, not just once and for all and forget it. But in every new circumstance of life, which is a circumstance of vulnerability to forces uh, that may be indifferent, that may be malicious and hostile, but in any case, forces that can badly hurt us. Uh, And in that real lived life, carrying one's cross, following Jesus, One constantly needs to hear the message of the resurrection of the crucified in order to persevere. 
You know, I think we see a strange uh, pop culture attestation to this in the move from superhero movies where the superhero is invulnerable because ultimately you can't relate to that and the plot is not scalable to superheroes who are flawed and have their vulnerabilities. And so it's like we kind of want (laughs) it both ways. We want them to be relatable because they have to be weak somehow, but we want them basically to be like super enough that their vulnerability can't ultimately take them down as we hope for ourselves. I think it must be some kind of misplaced resurrection faith that's at work in those superhero stories. Yeah, and we want we want wounded healers, right? Mm. <laughs> or redeemed redeemers or other other such gnostic ideas. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's uh let's shift gears a little bit, Sarah, and uh, you took the name of Rudolf Bultmann in vain a little bit earlier. You do it more than I do, dad. <laughs> But I, I, I think it's a little too easy simply to dismiss him. Yes, it's true that he demythologized the resurrection, by which he meant that, well, you know, basically for Boltman, uh, physical miracles don't occur. They just don't happen. I mean, he's a, he's a 20th century, mid-20th century uh, positivist, scientific positivist in that sense. And so you have to interpret the story of the resurrection existentially, as you said, referring to a state of mind or a spiritual feeling and so forth and so on. Granted, Boltman the theologian, I think here is inadequate. But Boltman the New Testament scholar, there was no one who understood Paul's message in this respect as profoundly as Boltman that it's all about the resurrection of the crucified. That's the original form of the Christian gospel. So bracket the fact that Boltman existentially reduces resurrection uh, to a new self-understanding in the believer. Bracket that fact. Exegetically, and as an interpreter of the New Testament, in particular of Paul and John, Boltman was unparalleled in pinpointing the precise meaning of the early Christian gospel as the resurrection of the crucified. And I think that's where we really get into the nitty-gritty of the theology of the resurrection. That's the segue I'd like to make. All right. Well, well, let's lead into that. So you've um, observed, or as many others have as well, that there are two forms of witness to the resurrection, namely the empty tomb stories and the appearance or visitation of Jesus stories. However, the critical part is that both of them are one step removed. We are seeing the witnesses who saw these things, empty tomb or risen Jesus. What we do not see ever in, or even get alluded to in any detail is the resurrection itself. And in fact, often in the, the resurrection stories, it's in this uh, passive or divine passive or indirect definite voice saying that Jesus has been raised, but not being very clear on on by whom or certainly how is not there. So why don't you unpack for us what that means theologically as well as historically, if that's relevant here. Yeah, I think when you referred to N.T. Wright, and I think he's, uh, you know, an impressive scholar in his book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, is a very important read. Uh, 30 years earlier, I cut my theological teeth reading Wolfhard Pannenberg's book, Jesus, God, and Man in which he, too, made arguments 
for the resurrection now, to use language a little bit clumsily here, as a resurrection as a historical event. Um, and he too made arguments that are very parallel to Wright's, that the rise of early Christianity and the ubiquity, universality of its conviction that God had spoken a new and creative word in raising Jesus from death. And this was precisely the word of God, the good news that had to be spread to all the world. Um, Pannenberg said, uh, you know, just like N.T. Wright, that nothing else explains the rise of early Christianity, nor nothing else explains the uh, remarkable revolutionary message of early Christianity. Um, and Pannenberg then tried to make theological hay out of this discovery, which he really owed to Bultmann, that the specific gospel of the New Testament is the resurrection of the crucified. And I think this is going to lead into something that you want to talk about, because uh, with the various verbs for resurrection in the New Testament, because the title of Ponenberg's early book was Jesus, colon, God, and man. And actually, you can talk about the resurrection in both of those dimensions, can't you? Mm-hmm. So you well, go to... ahead and talk about it. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, a, a number of, of years ago, I just got curious about the fact that there are two different verbs used, I thought, more or less interchangeably in Greek to describe the resurrection, egero and um, anistemi. Um, and they're both totally ordinary verbs normally. I mean, egero just means to like to rise up from sitting and anistemi means to stand again. The ana, like, uh, you know, we, we often have prefixes in English. Uh, um, anastasis, meaning resurrection, like the girl's name, Anastasia. Um, so anyway, I was just kind of curious, like, why are there two and do they have any technical sense? Um, usually they're made technical by adding ek necron, which means from the dead. Um, but what I discovered, actually, is that there is a very interesting and distinctive usage in the New Testament writings um, about them. So, for instance, the the noun anastasis for resurrection is always used, except in one single case where it's derived from the other verb, um, agersis, uh, from agero. But on the other hand, there's definite uh, preferences running. So, for instance, um, Matthew's gospel never uses the anastemi verb for Jesus' resurrection. He only uses agero. And it's always when it's talking about Jesus or anyone being raised, it's always in the um, either the passive voice or in the, the definite voice, which looks passive but is active. And that's why you sometimes see in different translations, it says either Jesus is risen or Jesus has been raised. The reason why is you have to decide from context whether it's a passive or a definite verb. Paul absolutely hates anastemi. <laughs> it appears once in First Thessalonians, which is his first letter, and it seems that it may be him quoting an early Christian creed, but from then on, every single thing, he always, always, always uses the agero verb. He never uses anastemi. John, by contrast, John's gospel flips back and forth with apparent ease between one or the other, and uh, it doesn't seem to mean as much. So basically what it comes down to is that 
First uh, Thessalonians, which is the earliest New Testament writing altogether, Mark, which is the earliest gospel, and then Luke and John, which are late gospels, use both verbs and both um, senses. They both say that Jesus was raised and that he rose. So he's both the object of the action of raising and the subject of the of the act of rising. Whereas by contrast, Matthew, all of Paul except for First Thessalonians and the few other epistles um, and revelation that, that mention Jesus rising, they only have it in the passive saying Jesus was raised and they always use a gay row and never ever anastemi. So anyway, I was just struck by that. I'm not entirely sure what it means. I'll, I'll put up in the show notes a link to my article where I have a chart using uh, with every single instance of these verbs as referring to resurrection and their grammatical forms. But it does seem to me that there is at least um, a strong double witness at the beginning and end of New Testament canon for Jesus rising and being raised, but kind of the, the middle territory and nearly, ex- except for this one exception, all of Paul is strict Jesus was raised. So that must mean something, Dad. Why don't you you tell me what it means? <laughs> well, you know, I think if I remember that article well, you concluded by suggesting the active voice, Jesus rose, right, is a uh, indication of the divinity of the Son of God. Uh, like the Gospel of John says, uh, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down and I take it up again. Yeah. And you see it in Mark, too, the first gospel. Yeah. So you right. So here you have an indication of the divine son, the divine agent who gives up his life, but also is capable then from that prostate state of taking it up again, of rising himself. Very interesting how to think about that. Uh, but you also have the idea uh, that as Jesus truly died and being dead was incapable of raising himself, right, or rising, he had to be raised, passive voice. And that would be apparently an indication of the humanity of the person of Jesus. I think it also raises the interesting question if we we're looking at one angle from rising or being raised, but on the other side, it raises the question of what is death? What is death such that Jesus could rise from it? Can there be any agency of a dead person? I mean, it seems like by definition, being a dead person means zero agency. You are reduced to 100% patiency and 0% agency. But on the other hand, there seems to be some sense in which Jesus' death retains a kind of agency if, you know, in his divinity, if not in his humanity. I don't know if we want to separate the, the natures that sharply in the person. We do have this peculiar witness from the Petrine letters about Jesus descending into to the realm of the dead. Um, is he an agent there? Is he purely a passive agent of death and hell? Uh, you know, so the, the resurrection question does ask, you know, more sharply the death question as well. Very good. Yes, exactly what is death. And here you have, would have to talk about death in several different dimensions. Um, physical death, uh, for example, and then spiritual death, death to God. We'll get into that in a second. But this is the passage. Paul starts the letter to the Romans with this quotation from what most scholars think was an early Christian creedal statement about the identity of Jesus Christ crucified and risen. He talks about the gospel promised beforehand through the prophets of the Old Testament and the Holy Scriptures, uh, 
and it's the gospel concerning his son. Now, here's what's interesting. Who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? That's a very interesting passage because it would seem to indicate first the messianic humanity of Jesus as a descendant of David. And then it would seem to indicate that the declaration or the revelation of his sonship was an act of the Holy Spirit who raised him from the dead by the resurrection from the dead. That, If that was the early Christian understanding of what had happened in the resurrection, uh, it's kind of interesting, isn't it, that that you could actually think that it is the deity that has become passive in the incarnation, that suffers death and must be revived, resurrected, and it's the humanity that is active and raises itself from dead, presumably in response to the Holy Spirit's summoning or calling or something come forth, like Jesus said to Lazarus. And it's Lazarus who rises and comes forth. You see what I'm indicating here? No, actually, I, do it again. <laughs> I, don't, I don't follow how you make the argument that the deity is passive and the humanity is active. Because it, it's only in the resurrection that the deity is declared or revealed according ah. to this passage. And it's not that the deity reveals itself, it's that it's revealed by the Holy Spirit, by the act of resurrection. On the other side, it's the humanity, of the messianic humanity of the son of David, right, who goes actively goes to death, and then I'm suggesting perhaps that it's the humanity that actively rises. Oh, I see. Wow, that's a very provocative thought, and it's a, a more um, a, another example of the uh, joyful exchange in the unity of the person that I had never thought about before. I guess I I understood, and I would be happy to be wrong about this, that the the declaring him to be um, the son of God according to power is that right? Um, it, it seemed to me to right. have more of a forensic quality as we see in the doctrine of justification, which has always made me a little nervous about what Paul thought about Jesus' divinity. But you seem to be arguing instead that it's um, it's this exchange in which the humanity is the agent and the the divinity is the patient, um, and that is part in in fact of the uh, the gospel action of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Is that right? I think that is right, Sarah. I think that what we're trying to get at, what I'm trying to get at here with this whole line of questioning is what is the resurrection as a theological event? What is the resurrection as a theological event? Now, if it's the invulnerable son, eternal son of God who makes believe that he dies, he doesn't really die because then he can just, you know, Right, raise himself up again, right? Pop up, like Groundhog's Day, right? Right, right. Uh, uh, have we really uh, got to the heart of what happens on Golgotha in the God-forsaken moment in which 
according to the Gospel of Mark, the Son of God experiences the abandonment, the agony of abandonment by the one he knew as his Heavenly Father. And that is a true and genuine, Luther calls it a true, the real suffering was not the physical suffering, Luther says, but this spiritual suffering that the deity has withdrawn from him and that he is exposed to abandonment by his own heavenly father. That's how deeply the divine son of God dies or passes into death. And so then what could overcome this chasm that opens up in the very life of God between the Father and the Son. And I think what's suggested here is that it's the Holy Spirit who causes or brings, uh, to put this all kind of melodramatically, but that's the only way we can really talk about this as an event in the life of God. But it's the Holy Spirit who says, Behold your crucified, dead, and buried divine Son, who in humility and in obedience drank the cup of divine wrath uh, that you commanded him to, including up to and including your own turning away from him in that awful moment, at that e- moment, eternal moment of hell that occurred on Golgotha. And, and as it were, says to the Heavenly Father, Behold your Son shrouded in the sin of the world, who did this in obedience to you and out of love for lost humanity. To which the joyful news of the resurrection is that the Heavenly Father says, That is indeed my Son. Declare him so powerfully. And that's what the resurrection is, theologically considered. I see. So the uh, the the visions or the voice of of the Father at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration are, in a sense, practice runs for the real one. That's really going to count when the Father vindicates his crucified and truly dead Son to say, "This is my beloved Son. Listen to him." From now on always. And I, I like what you said there, Dad, because it also makes the Holy Spirit necessary <laughs> to the whole story of what's right. unfolding here. It's right. very easy to, you know, the Holy Spirit always gets lost in the shuffle somehow. But what you're saying here is that for the the resurrection of the crucified one to take place, there has to be a Holy Spirit who is who is calling to the the dead hundred percent patient, zero percent agent Jesus in the tomb to come forth and receive his crown from his father. So the divine person is raised, but in his humanity, he rises. Right, right, right. How's right. that? Yeah. No, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, I believe it. That's what it's all, <laughs> well, that's what my life is premised on, right? Well, I think, I think a lot of people get hung up on the resurrection because they think it's nothing but a physical miracle that is supposed to be evidence for the truth of Christianity or the truth about Jesus or something like that. And that, I think, uh, you know, the whole Doubting Thomas story in the Gospel of John is meant to say, no, that's not the point. That is not the point at all. The resurrection stories convince no one to believe in Christianity. Let's just put that out there on the table. 
Yeah, if anything, they they actively create disbelief. I think the Lazarus story in John is doing the same thing. It's saying, if you want a resuscitation, we can give you a resuscitation, but it's not the thing, the thing that we're headed for. It's so striking that Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, which seems to be like some sort of confirmation of what he's about to do with Lazarus. But actually, it's the dramatic contrast with what he's going to do with Lazarus. Lazarus is a temporary rescue mission, but it's not the, the changing everything that happens with with, with Jesus at the end there. And I also think uh, along these lines, all the Gospels report in a way that seems to me almost um, not quite thumb nosing, uh, but uh, something along that lines, a kind of taunting, deliberately giving you what would have been considered unreliable witnesses. I mean, all the, the, the Gospel testimonies is that the women are the first witnesses. And of course, they're at the time inadmissible right. in a court of law, and they're notorious for their gossip and womanly talk. So you can't trust anything they say. And you see an empty tomb. Mark ends totally inconclusively. And, you know, the Thomas story you mentioned in John is, you know, you can be right there and hear the good news and refuse to believe it. In Matthew's gospel on the Mount of Ascension, Matthew actually says people are standing there seeing Jesus raised and lifted to heaven, and yet some doubted. <laughs> so again, as, right. as the evidence that demands a verdict, resurrection is such a non-starter. Absolutely. And so then we have to ask, then what is the what is the theological function of the resurrection narratives and here i would suggest to you historically in early christianity the resurrection narratives served a anti-docetic purpose docetism remember is the early christian heresy that denied that jesus was a human being of flesh and blood that he only appeared to be a, a, a human body, an enfleshed human body, was in fact a phantom or a hologram or something like that, an apparition, much like you see the Hindu gods depicted in Indian movies, you know, that kind of, or a hero in a Greek movie about the ancient Greek gods and heroes and so forth. That's why the, the heresy in John 6, the Gospel of John 6, uh, when the Capernaites uh, took offense at Jesus when he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. And in First John, the heresy is those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh, right? So here, um, th that's where I think we have to understand the Doubting Thomas story. Uh, what Thomas doubts is not the fact that the other disciples have seen an apparition. What he doubts is that the apparition they've seen is really the Jesus who was crucified. As I said earlier, they knew all about apparitions of dead people. No big deal. Okay, so what? So you had a, a vision of a dead Jesus. It's That's not the one I'm concerned about. What I want is the, the dead Jesus alive again, if I'm going to believe any of this happened. And that's why this the story is so stunning. Uh, because... When Thomas finally sees the risen Jesus face to face and Jesus invites him to touch his wounds, confirming that the risen one is and remains forever the one who was crucified. That's the point. That's the anti-Docetic point. Resurrection does not mean leaving the historical identity of the body, Jesus of Nazareth, behind in the tomb but it is the vindication of the historical life in the body of this Jesus of Nazareth uh, and all of, it, all of what it means for us. 
And it's at that moment that Thomas falls to his knees and exclaims, of the crucified and risen man, my Lord and my God. The very picture of early Christian orthodoxy uh, for the Gospel of John. And in the background, uh, our listeners should know, there's an early Christian piece of literature called the Gospel of Thomas. And the Gospel of Thomas is a kind of hard to classify, but it appears to be an early form of Gnostic Christianity or Docetic Christianity, which denies this fully embodied nature of Jesus Christ. And so uh, it's very fascinating that it's precisely the disciple Thomas in John's resurrection narrative that makes this orthodox anti-Docetic uh, confession. Sure, sure. So re- reclaiming, in a sense, that, that figure away from its uh, um, propagandistic use in the Gnostic literature. I, I find it very exactly. um, profoundly moving. To me, one of the most profoundly moving aspects of the resurrection of Jesus is that he still has the scars, that resurrection didn't mean erasing or even healing the crucifixion, but that his glorified and risen body forever retains these marks of what he actually endured on the earth. So it asserts the the strong continuity of the identity of the, the crucified Jesus with the risen one. But I, it also... I. I don't know. I, I This is purely pious imagination on my part, but I feel that when we are raised, we will be healed fully of all of our infirmities, weaknesses, damaged scars that we have accumulated in a, a, a hard lifetime. But I, I think that Jesus is the only one who will keep them and that that will be the permanent remembrance of the cost of our healing is, you know, as in Isaiah yeah. 53, that he, he, he took the scars, but he kept the scars as well in order that ours might be fully healed. Yeah. That's a lovely, lovely, lovely thought. Yes. Yeah, thanks. Um, Along these lines, I I learned recently, I don't think I mentioned this um, before, but um, in 1 Corinthians, there's this passage that's always puzzled me where Paul says, um, nobody in the spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. And I always thought that was super weird. Like, why would you say Jesus is accursed if you're showing up (laughs) at an early Christian assembly? Because like, there's a lot of better things you can do with your time and have a much better reputation than hanging out with these kooky Christians. And, um, and what I read, I think maybe it was in uh, Kazamon alluded to it in his, his Romans commentary, is that the specific emphasis there is the word Jesus, which means the crucified man. So the idea that Paul is combating, and he writes so much about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians, because evidently the Corinthians thought, first of all, the general resurrection had already happened. Um, As I mentioned earlier, that was the understanding that resurrection would mean everybody was raised, not just Jesus. Um, And therefore they thought they weren't going to die. But secondly, that that meant they could just kick away the ladder of Jesus' crucified and broken body and any of suffering of their own. So they would, you know, in a moment of ecstasy, say, Jesus is accursed. The sense of it being that crucified dude, we don't want him anymore. We're free of that. Or in Christ. Exactly. And Christ is Lord, the risen and glorified one who takes us away from all this pain and suffering and vulnerability. Um, And that that was so illuminating to me. That makes perfect sense, I think, of this whole cluster of ideas we've had here, that there has to be a continuity between the crucified and the risen one or the whole gospel proclamation is void. Yeah, and that's in our Lutheran theology. That's the traditional emphasis in Christology on the unity of person, 
what you could call a single subject Christology. Uh, again, Philippians 2, the Christ hymn that Paul adapts in Philippians 2, is the seat of this doctrine of the unity of the person. There is a one singular subject of the patient of all the action. That's the one who was eternally in the form of God, uh, equal to God, but did not count equality with God something to be coveted, but he emptied himself, a divine act of humility, of renunciation, and uh, took on the form of a servant, became incarnate, and then became obedient in his incarnate state, even to death, death upon a cross. Therefore, God has ex highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. Now notice, it's one subject, one singular subject, who passes through in a real history, passes through several states of being, of existence. Eternal glory with God from eternity, a state of humiliation in the flesh, in the obedience of faith in the flesh, and then a vindication and exaltation to lordship, a liberating lordship over a redeemed creation. One subject, not two. There's not a son of God and a son of Mary. There's not a risen Christ and a crucified Jesus. It's one person, right, that right. passes through these several states. And that has been historically a very important witness of the Lutheran theological tradition. Yeah, and well, obviously picking up on, on some but not all strains of the early church where it's uh, definitely also highly disputed. Yeah. So as we're, we're wrapping this up here, um, you've talked often, and I'd like you to maybe expand on this a little bit more here, about the difference between demythologization, which is the Boltmannian term, and your um, case for deliteralization um, as tools for, for those of us who would like to witness to our faith in the crucified one who was raised from the dead by his father. You know, as we said, the as a historical event, although we believe it and profess it, it's kind of a non-starter for bringing people in. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe not. <laughs> if people if people believe it, fine. I mean, I'm not trying to talk you out of it or anything. Um, but but your point, I think your deeper point is that we have to talk theologically, theologically decode what this means, not to, to take away the body or the history, but in order to render it intelligible and meaningful for people. So can you just like sketch out for us, what do you mean when you talk about deliteralizing these meanings in order to render the theological meaning available to people who can't start because of, you know, logically, well, p ancient people knew as well as we do now that dead people don't come back to life. It's not like they were ignorant of that fact. <laughs> but how can we open up this conversation for, for uh, skeptics today? Or I should say for Christians who are showing up but don't actually believe or know what they believe about the resurrection because it seems right. weird and they're embarrassed by it. Let me just make a broad statement and then I'll rapidly try to get to your question. The whole modern period of Protestant theology, especially Lutheran theology in Germany, has been a series of embarrassments about the beliefs expressed in the creed about Jesus Christ. Someone once made fun of Boltman's demythologizing and said, I do not believe that he was born of the Virgin Mary. 
I do believe that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, but I do not believe he was raised from the dead, nor that he descended into hell, nor that he sits on the right hand of the Father. So the only thing I believe is the historically verifiable fact that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. That's And that is a parody of Boltman, but it's expressing this widespread embarrassment, intellectual embarrassment, about the beliefs entailed by Christian faith. Um, and uh, supremely, of course, that's the belief in the resurrection. So as we've explained in this episode, Boltman tried to demythologize resurrection. He had a kind of a historical explanation. They discovered the empty tomb. What have they done with the body? What has happened to Jesus? Someone said, he's not here. And then another one said, he is risen. Jesus has risen into the kerygma. And from there, the word got out. That's how Boltman understood the resurrection. You follow me? Yeah, I think it's wildly implausible as a, a useful explanation, but okay, sure. Yeah, but, but yeah, of course. But the point, the point is, is that Boltman was trying to interpret existentially the resurrection faith without requiring anybody to believe something that was intellectually embarrassing for a modern person. That's what he was up to. So your answer, how do we make this convincing to a skeptic? Well, one way was tried by Rudolf Boltman. How well does that work out for us? <laughs> Not great. Well, I, I think more deeply, the problem is people assume in advance that they know what resurrection means. And they usually take it in the most literalistic, physicalistic sense, right? And then they take it furthermore as modern evidence that demands a verdict, as a proof. And then, of course, you get into the typical liberal conservative arguments. It is a proof. It really happened in history. Uh, and you're going to go to hell if you don't believe it. It can't be a proof. Things like that don't happen. If you don't discover a faith in the historical Jesus, there's no faith left for you to have at all. That's typically the impasse we have in contemporary Protestant thought. What I hope we've tried to establish in this episode is that the resurrection faith cannot be demythologized. The word mythos in Greek, the myth in demythologizing, is simply the word for story or narrative. You cannot take this story away, as in Philippians 2. It's integral, a state of glory, a state of humiliation, a state of vindication and exaltation. If you're talking about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, you're talking about a single subject that passes through these historical states. Now, the point of this story is not convincing evidence for a skeptic. It's rather about the identity of Jesus Christ, the identity of God, and therefore the identity of Christian believers. What the payoff is, the punchline of it all, is, is who is God and what is God doing and who are we in relationship to this God? And here, I think the classic answers are very simple. In Romans 4, Paul, for example, says about Abraham, Abraham is the father of faith in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's a statement about what 
the one true God is. Who is and what is God? God is God of resurrection. God is the one who calls into being things that don't yet exist. God is the one who always has new possibilities when, humanly speaking, we've come to a dead end. And when we say the word God, we're not talking about an impersonal, abstract principle somewhere up in the heavens uh, who has no regard or care for the creation, but the God who is determined from the beginning to redeem and fulfill all the creatures of his creating through the missions of his Son and the Spirit. That is the God of the resurrection who calls into being things that don't yet exist, who can make a way when there is no way. And secondly, then, what does this identity of God of the resurrection mean for us? And Paul concludes this chapter that Abraham's faith, Romans 4, was reckoned to him as righteousness. That is his faith in the resurrection power of God and the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that don't exist. And he says this was written not only for Abraham's sake, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. So I think, Sarah, the way to really unpack the resurrection of the crucified one is the interpretive work of theology, which explains this as an event in the life of God in which God sought and found the way through the humble obedience and uh, ignominious death of his own beloved son on the cross. God found the way to reach all the way into the darkness and death of humanity and there firmly to grab hold of us in a way that can never be separated so that in union with the crucified Son, we too, who are attached to him in this way by repentance and faith, will share in his vindication and glory. Wonderful. So I guess what I would take from that is then, if we look at the resurrection as an event within the realm of human, scientific, or historical possibilities, we will fundamentally misunderstand it because we will be looking within, you know, the created realm um, of things that can happen or can't happen. But what you're saying here is that by definition, the resurrection is the the ultimate act beyond all human, horizontal, scientific, historical possibilities. It is after, beyond, above those kind of things. And the reason why we resort to language that sounds mythological is because by definition, it can't be language that fits within our scientific and historical horizons. Um, And 
the science and history are great. You know, we, we are deeply invested in, in human possibility because we also confess God as creator. But there, when we're talking about the resurrection, we are looking to the God who created out of nothing. We're looking to the God who raised Jesus out of the dead, uh, which is the state of nothingness after creation. We're looking to the God who justifies the ungodly who have nothing to offer for their own uh, righteousness. Um, that is the, the place we're looking at. And that's why we have to go beyond this um, realm of possibility, precisely to the realm of impossibility, that's where we truly find God. Yeah, there was a really good German biblical scholar um, of my generation called Gerd Tyson, who wrote a wonderful book on the miracles of the New Testament, a very uh, a fine survey and interpretation of all the miracle stories attributed to Jesus. And he made two points. All the miracle stories are nothing but anticipations of the resurrection, number one. And number two, all the miracle stories have one and one purpose only, to indicate the God who has possibilities beyond our imagination. Mm. That's it. That's mm. all they're trying to do. That their, their point is solely and exclusively theological, to indicate God who has these possibilities, and in the process, of course, to reveal God's good and gracious will. So all the stories of Jesus' healing the sick have become for us the uh, mandate that in we carry on the work of Christ by our own work of healing, and that includes the rise of medical science and so forth. Yeah. Yeah, so I think to anticipate, we'll eventually talk about the doctrine of vocation. But what that says to me is that pursue every human possibility, every good human possibility that lies within your power, because that is part of the gift of, of creaturely and bodily life. But every power, every possibility you have eventually hits a brick wall. It comes to a screeching, screaming halt. And then what? And the reason why we talk about God as the creator out of nothing and the raiser of the dead and the justifier of the ungodly is because for all the wonders of human possibility, they always, always end. God's possibilities do not. Exactly. Now, and I want to make one concluding thought. We're recording this uh, episode of our podcast during the, uh, we're coming to the apex of the global pandemic crisis over the novel coronavirus. Well, we hope it's the apex. We don't know. We hope, we don't know. And I, I think this is a very significant event in our history, no matter how it turns out in the short term, because we've suddenly realized with a deep shock how fragile uh, our institutions are throughout the world and how easily this event could topple the world into a global depression and how difficult it would be to extract ourselves out of it. Um, and the fact that we might develop a vaccine for this coronavirus, we've now given a, a shot across the bow of warning uh, that other pandemics are possible and that the, our systems and institutions are highly fragile, vulnerable. The whole house of cards could collapse. A lot of modern Christians, especially in the West, have really replaced faith in the God of the resurrection with faith in history as God. Uh, don't you want to be on the right side of history? That's something we ask all the time, as if history is God. And what that really reveals is our kind of 
sometimes fatalistic, but usually optimistic faith, belief in human progress. A global depression uh, could, just like it did 80 years ago, or a global pandemic, just like the Spanish influenza did 100 years ago, any of these catastrophic events could suddenly destroy the so-called American dream and all the other dreams of modern humanity to triumph over nature and uh, ease our way forward into ever, every day and every way getting a little bit better. I often say that to my students, Sarah, after I've taught them the Holocaust course. What would you do if overnight your own investment in the American dream were robbed from you, taken away? just like happened to so many of those poor victims uh, of the Nazis. What would, you, what would you do if you lost that tacit faith? And, of course, for most of them, it's an utterly shocking question. It's a question that just demoralizes and defeats them, even in thinking it. But I think what we theologians have to say is this fragility, this vulnerability, is always there right below the surface. And this is the deep predicament of humanity. And uh, for those with ears to hear, the gospel of the resurrection fortifies even us who are in the grip of a global pandemic to live in hope. Well, all I can say to that is Christ is risen. He is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. Well, next time then, um, following uh, more or less logically on this, we are going to present you with a bouquet of early Christological heresies in order for you to, um, I guess bouquet is a bad choice of word, right? Because it seems like it's something you want to keep. You'll want to fling these flowers out the back door. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.